0: So, Barry, before we start the show, uh, I feel like I need to mention the fact that uh, we lost my dad a couple days ago. Uh, 93 years old, uh, 25 years in the United States Navy, married to my mother for 70 years. Um, I don't know, you know, 93 years. I don't know where to begin. Um, He was the middle child of two deaf people, his mother and father, Richard and Mary. Imagine that Barry, 1928 is when my dad was born. Eh, We're in the middle of the depression here in the United States and two deaf people. Now this is not 2021 where there are certain amenities available. To people with different, you know, handicaps, whether they be blind, deaf, or whatever, uh, but his two parents were deaf in 1928, and raised five boys, all of them great men. Uh, and uh, his father, his father worked for the Daily News. His father worked for the Daily News and the printing room because uh, one of the things that apparently the noise was so incredible in the printing room that they made a point of hiring people with hearing problems and, and deaf people. And that's how my grandfather, uh, got his job at the daily news, the job that he held for, I don't know how long, uh, like, I think pretty much all of his adult life. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. My, uh, my dad was very protective of his parents' legacy and he liked to make myself and my brother and my sister, believe that uh his parents had a perfect marriage uh and that they never argued. Uh, and of course that wasn't true. I mean, you know, in any marriage there's going to be uh, certain flashpoints, certain storms that you have to go through and of course they argued. But my dad liked to make us think that they never argued and I remember a kind of a funny story we went up uh for uh uh I think it was my, uh, my uncle's anniversary. Uh, and so we went up and we were visiting with his kids. Uh, we were sitting out on the back porch and there it was my brother and my sister and I and, uh, his kids. And as we were talking about it, my, uh, my uncle, my uncle, John, who was my dad's younger brother, uh, was telling a story about his dad, my dad's father. And he said, you know, he says, I remember that, that pops used to, go down to the local tavern and he'd be sitting there having a drink and, and it's time for dinner. And so mom would send me down to go get, you know, go get pop and say, go get him. And of course they're signing with one another. And so my uncle John said he went down there and and kind of grabbed my my grandfather by the arm and and dragged him home and said, Mom says it's time to come home. And when he got back home, my uncle said, There's Mom and pop, and they're having an argument, but of course, because they're both deaf, they're having an argument in sign language. And uh, so there they are, and they're you know the fingers are flashing, and and you know uh, my grandmother apparently could get her fingers going pretty damn fast when she was in a when she was in a mood, and she was in a foul mood on this occasion. But what I remember about hearing the story was, you know, wow, this really humanizes my grandparents to me. You know, my dad, on the other hand was completely horrified that my uncle John had told us this story about his parents because we were supposed to be part of the belief that my grandparents never argued. And that's the way that my dad was. He was very protective of his parents. He was very protective of us. I've told the story to people before. I did not see my parents have a verbal argument in front of me until I was 19 years old. Not so much as a, Mary, what the heck are you talking about? You know. Larry, you know, I can't believe you said that. I mean, not even like raised voice. Uh, Barry, do you remember your parents having an argument in front of you by any chance? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Many times. Honestly, I think pretty much everyone does, you know, and it's just my, my dad, whether it was his choice or whether it was my mom's decision, they always took their marital disagreements into the bedroom. They presented a united front when they came out to, uh. Discuss things with myself or my brother or my sister, and you know that's just the way they were. Now th- that was great for me because it was nice. I had like sort of this idyllic childhood where there was no uh, uh, parental uh, uh, warfare uh, verbally going on or, or or anything worse than that. But on the other hand, when I got married to uh, my first wife, I literally had no concept of how to have a marital argument. And that's something that, believe it or not, I've said this before, you need to learn how to have a marital argument. I told my daughter that when she got married, you need to, you need to figure out ground rules for marital arguments and decide what is okay and what is not okay. I had no concept of how to do that, uh, you know, and to be honest with you, it really was uh, something that I think affected my first marriage, you know, because, uh, she would win a lot of the arguments because I didn't know how to, uh. How to how to do it? I know that sounds really silly and and trite, but it was true. Um, my dad uh, was a, a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and you might ask yourself, how to, how does a kid from New York, uh, you know, how does he become a St. Louis Cardinals fan? Well, my dad grew up. Uh, this this is for people like our, our producer Lou uh, and friends like Howard Brody and and different guys in the group uh, Ron Lemieux that are old baseball fans and baseball historians. My dad grew up when the St. Louis Cardinals in the gas house gang was, uh, on top of the baseball world, uh, names like Rogers Hornsby and, and, uh, Dizzy Dean, Frankie Frisch, uh, guys like that, uh, Ducky Medwick and my dad, instead of latching onto one of the New York teams, the giants, the Yankees or the Dodgers, he latched onto the St. Louis Cardinals. And I want to tell you up until like the end of the season, my dad, one of the only things that gave my dad joy towards the end of his life was watching baseball and watching his St. Louis Cardinals. And this year, my dad, uh, my dad's Cardinals at the end of the season went on like a, I don't know, like a 15 or 16 game winning streak. And, uh, they were dead in the water in August as far as the playoff drive. And because of that winning streak, they managed to, uh, to make the playoffs. And, uh, I was real happy for my dad that, uh, that his team gave him something to be happy about. Quite frankly, my dad in the last few years of his life had a lot of health issues. He was in and out of the hospital. Uh, I will uh, I will break kayfabe on something uh, to you, the audience. We, uh, we actually recorded uh, prior to this occasion, a message from me to my dad because we thought we were gonna lose my dad. Uh, I think it was in a, maybe in August. But uh, my dad kept rallying, he kept as we say kicking out of it uh you know my uh my wife used to say my my dad was too ornery to pass away uh you know because he uh he had that that fighting spirit i guess and you know i would i would tell Barry and Lou sometimes before we'd start recording i'd say oh you know things aren't looking well for my dad and Barry would say you know you've said that before and your dad keeps you know fighting back and keeps kicking out and unfortunately uh the other day my dad did not kick out. and But he didn't tap out. I will say that. My dad did not tap. He he didn't kick out, but he didn't tap out. And uh, I, uh, I got a phone call and apparently my wife did not tell me, but she had made arrangements with my sister that my sister was to call her so that my wife could be the one to tell me that my dad was gone. And I've had discussions with Barry before because, uh, Barry, I know that you lost your dad at a relatively young age. How old was your dad again?
1: No, no, I, it, my dad, when my dad passed, we were doing chair shots, Jeff. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. We, but we were I doing, mean, your news, dad, it's not like your dad was in
0: his seventies. That's what I meant.
1: Or, oh, no, my dad was, uh, shit. My dad was, uh, I think. A, a month, maybe a couple of weeks before
0: his 74th birthday. Oh, okay. I, I was, I yeah. was thinking your dad. that. But anyway, one of the things that we've talked about between the two of us is, you know, uh, as painful as it is to lose your dad uh, at a younger age uh, and to lose the opportunity to spend time and gain memories with your dad, uh, the flip side of that is you get to have your dad uh, until he becomes much older. At, you know, 93 years old, but at the same time, you, you watch your, uh, your dad physically begin to deteriorate. Uh, your dad, my dad had all kinds of health issues. So it's like, you, you, you wonder, uh, is it worth getting those extra few years because he's, you know, physically having so many problems and, you know, you sit there and you think to yourself, uh, am I being selfish by wanting him to be around you know, am I being selfish because I wanted to be there, but he's having so many physical problems that, uh, you know, the quality of life, as they say, is is not what it might have been. And so uh, so my dad did have a lot of health issues. Uh, it's not like I can say, oh, my dad died of uh, a heart attack. My dad died of cancer or put a specific, you know, quantifiable thing on it. My dad was 93 years old and it was a combination of a lot of things. Uh, That led to my dad uh, passing away. Uh, My sister sent me a a picture the other day uh, and my dad in the last, I don't know, month of his life, they had brought in a hospital bed for my dad to stay in. And my dad would uh, sleep in his office uh, where he had his TV and he could watch his baseball games and, you know, the news all day and that kind of thing. And my mom, whose name, whose Age, I will not divulge Barry because she would kill me if I did do that um, but my mom is physically in pretty good shape but she has mobility issues uh going back many years ago to where she had a uh, a fall when she was out walking one day and so she has arthritis like in her knee uh to the point where it's it's tough for her to even get in and out of a car so but so my mom uses a walker and so there was a picture where my mom had, you know, gotten up with the walker and she went into the room where my dad is. And she was sitting down and she put her hand in my dad's hand and she was talking to him. And she was talking about things that they had gone through over 70 years of marriage. Barry, you know, Barry, you talked to me about how. I, I was at the courthouse for 33 and a half years and wow, what an incredible run that is. Can you even imagine being married to someone for 70 years, Barry? <laughs> there is something in the Baldwin DNA that. Well, and no, no, it's funny you say that because. It's true. You know, I'm just going to say my brother, my sister and I, let's just say we have, we've all had more than one marriage. I'm just going to say that. And so, you know, we used to, we used to joke and, and I I've, Told the joke before that somewhere in that DNA there was a split of the chromosome because <laughs> none of us managed to make it that long and uh and the blessed state of matrimony. Uh but um so anyway, so she sent my sister sent me the picture of my mom holding my dad's hand and she was talking to him about all the things they had experienced, all the places they had been, because my dad was in the Navy, they they were overseas, they he did two stints in Cuba, he did stints in Japan. They uh they went all over the world. Uh, uh you know, this this kid from New York and this girl from a small town in South Carolina got to go all over the world. And uh my mom was talking to him, and my sister brought in the some music, and my mom and dad's favorite song was uh a song, which I'm, of course, drawing a complete blank on right now, uh, called, uh, it's not the wind, maybe the wind called Mary or something like that. And of course, by, my by, mom's. by Jimi Hendrix. No, not that yeah, Okay. <laughs> mom and dad, not huge Jimi Hendrix fans. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, <laughs> you were going, wow, the were way cooler I than I thought they were. What a song for a couple of there. Yeah. that's Fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, uh, But it was a song with Mary in the title, and so it was always kind of their song. And so my mom said that even though my dad was basically asleep and, you know, very non-cognitive, as she tried to pull away to go back into the living room, he grabbed her hand and he squeezed her hand. And one of the things that we told my mom to tell him was, it's okay, you can go it's okay to say goodbye and to know that we'll take care of mom and that she's going to be okay. And she told him that and he passed away not too long after that. So Lou, can you join us, my friend? I am here. Barry Lou. Will you, will you join me? Absolutely. And in this special occasion, because this was my father's drink of choice, will you join me for a bourbon and ginger? Oh, And we say, fare thee well, Dad. I'll meet you on the other side. 13 breaking a fave with Bowdrin and Barry, the three best friends you didn't know you had uh, with myself, uh, the booker, Jeff Bowdrin, my man, Barry Rose in Plymouth meeting PA and our good friend, sweet Lou scam, likely Lou Kippelman out in the Bay area. We are here for you. The brothership is here for you today, Barry. We're going to be, Oh, Barry. It's been a hot tick since we've been to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Am I correct? My man. It is, but have you
1: ever been out to Calgary in person? I have not.
0: Neither have I, and I want to go. Well, I have to tell you, one of the dream trips that I would like to take with Mrs. Bowdrin, you know, people come to you and say, hey, you won the lotto. Where are you going? What's your dream trip? Barry, what would be your dream trip if you won the lotto? Would it just be to go down and park your ass on the beach there uh, north of Tampa? No, so it would probably be Fiji, Tahiti,
1: Somewhere out there to do a big trip out, out yeah. And
0: like the Good luck on that 22-hour flight. That's all I'll say. Edible. I will say that one of the things I've always wanted to do with the lovely Mrs. Bowdern is take one of the train rides, the train tours that go through the Canadian Rockies. Oh. I think it starts like Vancouver, goes all the way over, I don't know, like uh, to Toronto or some, maybe Montreal. I think that would be absolutely epic, especially if you did it. You know, before it got really bitterly cold, if you did it like early fall when the leaves are changing, that's a trip that I've always wanted to take with Mrs. Bowdrin. So, no, I have not, though, been to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Barry. All right. Well,
1: neither have I. But, uh, Jeff, maybe one day, maybe the brothership will rent a van and we'll make a caravan to uh, to Calgary. Yeah,
0: because those van trips uh, from Calgary <laughs> exactly. uh, they were always legendary for how well they went. Guys oh, getting their up. eyebrows shaved and all that kind of stuff. But today we're going there because we are looking at Owen Hart taking on Muck and Sing. March 1988. Oh, Barry, it's for the North American title. All kind of shenanigans going on. And we get to talk crap about Ed Whalen again. So that's always fun. Barry going this week in CWF history. Uh, we are going to be talking a little AEW from the other night. Uh, the time we tape this. Barry, are you ready to go? Let's do this, man. Barry, time to look at the match of the week. Oh, it has been the proverbial hot tick since we've been to Calgary to watch a little Stampede Wrestling. Are you ready, my man? I love Stampede Wrestling, Jeff. Yes. So we're looking March 1988. Oh, it's Owen Hart. Definitely a favorite of this show, Barry. He is taking on Muck and Sing for the North American Heavyweight Championship. Let me just say beforehand. Mike Shaw... Really got shit on by the WWE and quite frankly, WCW too. They, they gave him horrible Barry and the pantheon of horrible gimmicks. Did Mike Shaw not take at least a couple? Oh, I would say so too.
1: And if you look at what happened in WCW, while the gimmicks were, it was Norman, the lunatic. And then I think it was Norman, the trucker. Yeah. While they were bad. And, trucker and, and norm, I think trucker yeah, yeah. norm, they were bad. He actually got over to some degree with that Norman, the lunatic, especially when he turned babyface. However, when he made it to the Federation, he was Bastion Booger and he friar did a, Ferguson. That's it. Friar Tuck Ferguson or whatever. Yeah. Those
0: two did not get over. And boy, those imagine that, that the guy playing a friar did not oh. get over, Barry. You know, <laughs> who, who would have thought that? Or a you guy know, named Bastian
1: Booger, whose whole yeah. gimmick was he's disgusting. Like yeah. it just, you know what? I, I I sometimes I I should say not even most of the time I really hate the WWF WWE for so many different reasons and so much bullshit. But that's just another
0: one of the many reasons. But what you a know, talent, Jeff. Uh, you know the amazing thing is Vince has had some really really good ideas. Okay, uh, let's give him credit. Sure. He's also had some really, really bad ideas. There, there seems to be no middle ground. <laughs> and, you know, it's either uh, you, you hit a home run or you swing and miss wildly with the with the idea for the gimmick. Uh, but here we are. Uh, we're talking Mike Singh when he was muck and Singh or Mike Shaw when he was muck and Singh, excuse me, in Calgary. A super, super hot run as a heel that lasted over a year. Uh, playing upon apparently in the Calgary area, there was a large uh, either Indian or Pakistani population. Uh, so uh, much like uh, uh, Sergeant Slaughter playing up against the, uh, the Iranians during the uh, the hostage situation, all that kind of stuff. You know, you're going for the xenophobic angle. So here you have Mike Shaw playing a, uh, I don't even know how to describe like an Indian guy who talks perfect English, but he wears yeah. the turban. He has the manager, uh, the interestingly named Abu <laughs> Wizal uh, G Barry, what would you think that they called him at ringside? Exactly. How smart was that? Absolutely. Exactly, yes. And also at ringside with him is uh, his uh, his quote-unquote brother, uh, Vulcan Singh. Apparently he was a Star Trek fan or something. That's uh, Gary Albright. Gary Albright was like an all-American wrestler at Nebraska. Comes up, gets the gimmick as uh, Muckin's brother Vulcan. So uh, Abu Wizal and uh, Vulcan Singh, they're at ringside. Uh, Of course, our old friend Ed Whalen and uh, Jim Davis, uh, who we recently lost uh, uh, on the commentary. Never really had a problem with Jim Davis, but, oh, Ed Whalen is just, you know. The problem I have
1: with Jim Davis, Ed Whalen is terrible. I'll I'll go down. I think he's one of the worst, if not the worst of all time. With Jim Davis, it's, I think, the clothes he wears and the hat. The hat, yeah. The The hat is pretty bad.
0: It's bizarre. Bizarre You know, the only thing I can say to explain is maybe a lot of times you see guys that have had hair transplants. They wear the hat to hide the fact they've had a hair transplant. Maybe that's what was going on uh, for a time. (laughs) time.
1: I don't know. Still (laughs) terrible. There's got, yeah, just all the way around, Jeff, when you watch it. and, And then he's got, if I remember correctly, he's wearing a tie, but he's loosened up the tie a lot. So the top button's unbuttoned, the tie's down. Uh, he, he's wearing a jacket that's I think it's kind of a Miami Vice type of gimmick going. He's got the hat on, kind of turned to the side. Just all of it uh, just doesn't work for
0: me. Like, <laughs> well, that now, that we, now that we've totally trashed all the people outside there, <laughs> yes. tell the folks what you thought about this match for the North American title, Owen versus Muckin. What would you think?
1: Yeah, and as Jeff said, as we're trashing uh, all these other, but I got to say, this fucking match is awesome. And let's talk about Owen Hart for a minute. So, look, we all love Owen Hart. And you could see when we, we recently discussed that AEW is going to be working with the Owen Hart Foundation, the response was great. We were really happy about it. Owen Hart, he, you know, it, it's almost as if Owen Hart is defined by his death. And when you say the name Owen Hart, most people immediately will respond. It was a shame. These children lost their father. A a wife lost her husband. They appeared to be deeply in love. You know, it, it all, it, it's just like, you know, and I get it. I understand that. But what what's lost in a lot of that is how great Owen Hart was prior to going up to New York. And, and he was still good in New York, but obviously, you know, his hands, proverbially, his hands were tied. But- As a wrestler, going back to Calgary, Owen showed above any of the other Hart members, the other Hart family members. Owen had the most pure talent of anybody. And granted, there are going to be some people that are going to be, wait, Bret Hart's the greatest of all time. I encourage you, go back and watch Owen Hart in Calgary. It is at a completely different level than anything that he and his brother were doing in the Federation. Jeff, when
0: this match took place, Owen was 22 years old. Yeah, it's crazy. He, he that uh... sink in, right? Well, well, and, and the thing is, is there are reports out there that when Owen was a teenager, uh, and he would travel to the different smaller towns, if someone no-showed or there was a problem, right. uh, they would put Owen under a hood. At, like, I'm talking like when he was like 15 years old and have him go out and work a match with people. So this wasn't like a guy that was 22 years old who had never wrestled, and, you know, was a rookie and boom, they put him in the ring and made him, yeah, the guy had been working for four or five years. So, uh, he had been taught all the different stuff. I'm sure the fact that he had his brother, Brett, you know, to, to watch and to emulate his brother, Bruce, although not nearly uh, as talented in the ring was a really smart guy to the business. Uh, a guy that, uh, as a booker up in Calgary, did a lot of very intelligent booking ideas, you know, and, uh, yeah, he was also smart enough to, you know, when he had a guy like Brian Pillman come in, just starting out, had lots of potential. Hey, I think I'm going to make that guy my tag yep. team partner, yep. you know, so bad, bad company, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of things around Owen that Owen could, uh, you know, uh, whether it's by osmosis, whether it's by watching a lot of stuff for Owen to learn from. Yeah. When you go back and you think too, and that,
1: you know, the Hart family with the, the patriarch of the family Stu Hart was very involved literally up until his death. And, you know, and here's a guy in his eighties, you know, that's still involved in professional wrestling. So every expectation was that Owen was probably two, three, four years old and was probably already down in the dungeon. I would not be surprised by that at all. Uh, That if Owen, you know, as from his, his first steps was probably down, you know, rolling on a mat doing something. And when you, when you watch his composure, this match is a great, I think, uh, you know, reflection of Owen Hart at that stage and certainly in the early part of his career. But when you watch this too, to have the kind of composure and poise that Owen Hart shows at 22 years old, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Also, his dropkicks. I really like his dropkicks. And why do I like them? Because they're completely different. Most dropkicks, from what I've seen are a guy who pivots his body to the side and then connects with usually the right foot. You know what? You know what I'm saying? He doesn't with Owen. It's completely different. Owen is like, he's on his back. So his back would be, I guess, parallel to the mat. And he, he, he kicks flush on. Which is a really different type of, uh... and it,
0: see, it seems like Owen always took the bump square on the back instead yeah. of some guys either take it on the side or they as they kick they pivot over and land on their stomach. Owen lands the drop kick, absorbs the the blow directly on his back, so his back is able to absorb it. It's it's probably a much safer way of doing it when you think about it. Yeah, unless you land on, like, the back of your neck or something, if you True, know what I yes. mean. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, I would
1: say it probably is. And it look, it worked for Owen, and I think it looks great. And what I liked about it is that it stands out. It's not just your average. You know, if you remember Tony Atlas, Tony Atlas had, and I love Tony Atlas, obviously, but Tony Atlas had, I think, the worst drop kick in the history of wrestling. Tony Atlas would essentially do a one-legged drop kick with the other foot usually on the mat. Do you remember that? Like, yeah. Like, it was just terrible. But Owen just does a whole new thing. What I also really liked about this match. Hey, these two guys worked fantastic together, which would also explain the fact that they had a semi long program. You know, their feud lasted for a while. But I love the finish of this match, Jeff. And I I'll let you take over the finish because I know you want to give your thoughts. But I was like, the finish works. It's it was a little different, but it was perfect in the way that it happened.
0: Well, let me just, before we get to the finish, let me just say, uh, you know, we talked about the horrible gimmicks that uh, Mike Shaw had as Muck and Sing. Or, I'm sorry, you know, we got to the Federation uh, and WCW. But up here in Calgary, he's given, you know, a a standard, like, if you think about it, it's a xenophobic angle. You know, you're you're preying on essentially racist viewpoints, uh, but they created this character. But he took it and ran with it, man. Uh, You know, he would come out, uh, he's wearing the turban. And then when they wrestle in Calgary, he'd be wearing the Edmonton Oilers jersey, which, of course, is the Calgary Flames' big rival. So he would just do shit like that to create heat. Uh, You know, he would talk about, you know, he he would make sports references that would kind of, like, piss people off. You know, it's exactly what you're supposed to do as a heel. And unfortunately for Mike Shaw, the timing of his career couldn't have been worse because Mike Shaw... Who, let's, let's be candid, was a large fat guy, uh, but who could work his ass off, who could bump. He came along at a time when the business only wanted guys that were big muscle heads. Because that's what Vince had programmed people to think, oh, uh, you're a wrestler. You've got to look like a bodybuilder. So somebody like Mike Shaw, if Mike Shaw came along today, Mike Shaw would be a fucking star. because. You know, today it's not as big a deal if you're not a muscle head because we've, you know, uh, Kevin Owens doesn't have a great body, uh, you know, other people like that, and so somebody like Mike Shaw who could take a young talent like Owen, who was, let's be honest, still, you know, uh, forming uh, his uh, character, his his ring work, and Stu gave Owen to Mike, and Mike absolutely was part of turning Owen into a friggin' star, and he's got to get credit for that. This match. Uh, is really, for the most part, it's Owen doing amazing spots. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's be honest. It's it's great, and you can see where you know we talk about how people uh, that came afterwards. You know, somebody like Chris Benoit, that that name we're not supposed to ever mention, but you can see where Chris Benoit was heavily influenced by Owen Hart uh, and the stuff that he did. And so this matches for the North American Championship. Owen is the defending champion. Uh, Mike. Uh, I, I keep calling him Mike Muck and Singh had, had had the title twice before. So he's trying to regain the title for the third time. Uh, as I said, his quote unquote brother Vulcan is outside the ring with Abu Wiesel, uh, who they uh, let me break a fade. They called him the weasel and a big shock. Uh-oh. Who was it? It was a like, he sort of reminded me a little bit. Like if Jimmy Hart had a huge mustache and wore a turban, because at ringside, like running around, I'm not saying the guy was Jimmy Hart, but he had the same kind of gi- uh, gimmick where he would run around stir up shit which that's what a manager's supposed to do let's be honest um but um ed Whalen, of course spends half the half the match uh talking about how wonderful owen is and how he's a star and the other half uh just being completely condescending to the uh the bad guys the heels which you know that's part of the problem i have with ed is gordon souley and Lance Russell, they could have contempt for the heels, you know, they, they could express the fact that they didn't like what the heels were there, but they weren't condescending towards them. You see what I'm talking about there? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense too. If muck and sing. And you're,
1: I'll go back to the first part of what you were saying. You're, you're absolutely correct that if muck and sing had come around now, somebody would have figured out how to make this guy a big star because it isn't all about, the look currently presentation is everything, but you don't have to be this perfect bodybuilder type any longer. And and I'm certainly grateful for that, but yeah, everything you just said just made a lot of sense to me.
0: That's yeah. And so, Jeff. yeah. And, and thank you. I appreciate that. And so what happens, the, uh, the ending is, is that uh, Vulcan is outside the ring. I don't know if he came to ringside with the cane or if Abu Wiesel, uh had the cane, yep. but a cane comes into play. Uh, Muckin reverses something on Owen. And is going for uh you know to to hold Owen down. At that point, Vulcan holds the cane out. Mucken grabs the cane for support as he's uh, on top of Owen. They get the one two three title change. Mucken Singh is the new North American champion. It was a pretty effective uh, heel move, I thought. And this match it goes maybe fifteen to seventeen minutes. A good match. Tons of friggin Owen spots. Tons of spots where you can see that Mucken Singh is helping make Owen a future star. So, Barry, once again, it is time for us to do a deep dive this week in CWF history. What do you got for me, my man? Uh, we got some good stuff, Jeff, and we're going
1: to be looking a little bit as we get towards the early part of the 80s. One of your favorite wrestlers. I'm not going to, uh, to, to spoil it and tell you who it is, but it's somebody that that you have talked about being on the first, I believe the first wrestling card you ever went to. I know one of your favorites. So Cuban assassin was on the first card you ever went to.
0: He's been around a long time.
1: He has been around a long time. I want to say, I think I saw him the first time. I want to say he worked Florida 79, maybe 80 for the first time. He's been around for a long time, but we're going to go back, Jeff, we're going to go back 60 years to the day. And we are in Jacksonville, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, a city that you know well, and also a city that was the largest weekly drawing uh, city of any city in CWF. And while a lot of the other cities were somewhere getting somewhere between, you know, maybe 3,500 to 5,000, Jacksonville was drawing between eight and 10,000 on a weekly basis, which is absolutely huge. This match, this was a headliner 60 years ago today, which is crazy. All heel team here, Kurt and Carl Von Brauner facing off with the original fabulous kangaroos of Al Costello and Roy Heffernan. And this is really interesting to me. CWF, because if you go back through some of these, and I know a couple of weeks back, we talked about the Von Brauners uh, facing off with Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen. And there were times when Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen faced off with Hiro Matsuda and Duke Kiyomoka. But I love the fact that CWF in the early 60s was doing a lot of these heel versus heel tag matches. And I kind of wish that they had stayed with it for whatever reason they didn't. But, uh, you know, you, you talk about legendary tag teams, and I think the fabulous Kangaroos and, you know, the Von Brauners have to be at the top of the list. So I'm really intrigued by that matchup. Moving 10 years later, Jeff, which would now be 50 years to today. Jack Briscoe and Eddie Graham facing Dick Murdoch and Bobby Duncombe. And the reason I pull this match out is pretty
0: early in Duncombe's career, right?
1: Had to be had to be. Yeah. I want to say Duncombe started. I want to say he made his first Florida appearance in 69. So I want to say he started a year or two before that. But the reason I bring this up too, Jeff is this is a public apology to Bobby Duncombe, who I know listens to every episode of Breaking K Fade with Boudron and Barry. But for years, I I referred to Bobby Duncan, and I've stated this to you, that he was the poor man, Stan Hansen. And you know what? I was wrong. that That is an incorrect and unfair categorization. Bobby Duncan, in hindsight, when you go back and you look at his matches uh, on YouTube, and there's not a lot that's available, but there's some stuff that's out there. Bobby Duncan was really good. He wasn't trying to be Stan Hansen. He certainly was around before Stan Hansen, but he really was... Working a different style than I think we had been used to. There are similarities to Stan Hansen, but at the end of the day, he was more of a quote unquote. Maybe,
0: maybe Stan Hansen, his career at least started with him doing a little bit of emulating Bobby Duncombe. I wouldn't doubt it, and I, I, think, I think he would have seen Duncombe
1: in his early days in Texas. So I, I, you know, again, similar height, similar look. I think Bobby Duncan probably. uh, I'm sorry, Stan Hansen probably did take a little bit from Bobby Duncan. I would agree with that, Uh, and with to great success also. Next matchup, we're moving two years later, so we are at this date, which is November the second, 1973. Florida title and main eventing the card in Tallahassee that night, state capital of Florida, by the way. Paul Jones against Buddy Colt, and I bring up this match really for a couple of reasons. One was I think some of the greatest professional wrestling I ever saw, if not the greatest I ever saw, was this trio of Paul Jones, Buddy Colt, and Jack Briscoe. And there was a period where any of those three were facing each other on a nightly basis. One night it's Briscoe versus Colt. The next night it's Colt versus Jones. Then it's Colt versus Briscoe, and then Briscoe versus Jones. And they were just alternating. And with any matchup you were getting out of those three, you were getting arguably, in my opinion, some of the best professional wrestling ever. Certainly some of the best that I ever saw. I will tell you a funny story, too. So we, we had a relationship with funny. funny haha ones.
0: or funny, unusual. Uh, Funny, haha on this. OK, well, let me. Also, I should we're gonna, you know what we're going to hold preface, that to you. you know.
1: I was going to say I need to preface that funny to me. All right. I don't know. what I don't know if anybody else is going to find this funny. But so. Buddy Colt, we we kind of had a relationship with. We had him to uh one of our fan fests. He was scheduled to be at another fan fest and COVID hit, so that was canceled. And Buddy sadly then took his own life during COVID. And we never got a chance to work with Buddy again. And a lot of people feel that Buddy is the greatest heel in the history of CWF. And I don't I'm not gonna dispute that, but I am gonna say I think great Malenko probably deserve, that's not a knock on Buddy at any stretch. Great Malenko probably deserves that title. But if you want to go number two or number three, I think Buddy Colt's right there. I, I would just go with Malenko, but Colt, Kevin Sullivan, Terry Funk, guys like that are right up there. So if Buddy Colt was great. Paul Jones was an interesting guy. And we've talked about, you know, Paul Jones. And I was at one point slated to write his autobiography. And Paul and I didn't have a falling out I guess, our, especially me, my life went in a different direction. My mother passed away. I had to move. I started a new job. I had another baby. And I couldn't give Paul the attention that his life story deserved. And I still have, I don't know, 10 chapters of this book that I still am trying to figure out what to do with it. And I'll probably just make it available for free online to read it because it's interesting, Paul's words. But I think the fact that I put our... Our working together, our relationship on hold, really irked Paul. And Paul was a guy that if something bothered him, he would have no trouble telling you. You know, Paul had no ish-
0: filter. Paul Jones. Let's just and say the that. And
1: stories are out there, and they're you know, again, we I think we talked about his uh, Paul at the CAC and uh, where he called Vince McMahon to the audience at the CAC which includes men, women and children. He called Vince McMahon, "See you next Tuesday." Thank you, thank you. Um, in front of hundreds of people. So oh. there there really isn't much of a filter there and Paul was the kind of guy that if he was mad about something, he would tell you. He would, you know, he complained about a lot of people that are he was friendly with and his good friends and he would complain about them all the time to me. And I don't think there was much behind it, but it was the way it was. So I think Paul got a little ticked off at me that we didn't move forward with the book. And I said I had to take a year off because of a baby, because of a new job. And at that point, Paul pretty much excommunicated me, which, again, circumstantial, and that's fine. So we're doing, I want to say it was FanFest 3 or FanFest 4, and my goal was to have the headliners be Paul Jones and Buddy Cole, reliving this great feud, which was breaking attendance records and all this other stuff. And I was like, this will be great, because Paul, again, give Paul a microphone and you're going to get sound bites. Like, you know, he's not going to be a boring guy up on a podium. And Buddy was a little more reserved. The ironic part, Buddy was a little more reserved. So I reach out to Buddy and Buddy comes forth and Buddy says, Y'all, you know, Buddy had... One, he had one rule, and that was this is the amount of pay that I need. I won't ever do a public appearance unless it's this amount of money. And that's fine. You know, that's it's good that he's got that rule, I think. And it was a very fair rule. So I I reach out to Paul, and Paul's numbers disconnected. So I go through Peggy Lathan, Peggy Lathan, who I saw at the gathering, and then she passed of COVID two weeks later or three weeks later. Rest in peace, Peggy. Uh, first time they had ever met her, and then she passes away. So I reach great out.
0: Hist- great historian to the business, especially the mid-Atlantic area.
1: Yeah, and you're less of a technical historian as somebody that had the respect of everybody that worked in that territory. Everybody knew Peggy. If you worked mid-Atlantic in the 70s and the 80s, you knew Peggy Lathan, and you liked her. It was just, you know, she had it. And she had a great relationship with uh with everybody in the mid-Atlantic region. So I reach out to Peggy and I explain to her what I want to do, what my, and I knew that she was in contact with Paul and I tell her exactly what I want to do and, and how excited I am. And I provide her with context on the feud and she goes, this is a great idea. So I, I said, would you mind reaching out to Paul to get his, uh, his thoughts on this, if we could do it. And if he's okay, I'll call him and then we can discuss pricing and whatever else he may need. So uh, 24 hours go by and and Peggy reaches back out to me and she says uh, she said, Paul is politely declining. So I know, Paul, Paul's never politely declined. <laughs> his wife, right. That's not happening. So I, I press Peggy a little bit more. So I'm like, Peggy, you know, what can I do on my side to make this happen? I you know. And she said, Paul, just at this stage. Paul doesn't want to travel and and Paul doesn't want to uh, he doesn't want to do any more fan what fe- a whole litany of excuses right so I I reach out one last time this is similar to my Barbara Clary conversation where she eventually essentially without saying go fuck yourself told me to go fuck myself right so I reach out to Peggy one more time and I was like so Peggy let me know what I can do let's you know if it's money. Whatever he's asking for, I think we're willing to accommodate it. We would love to. His friends want to see him in Florida. I'm going on and on with everything I'm trying, and she comes back and she says, "Paul would rather get hit by a car than come down there and be a part of the fan fest <laughs> like that." <laughs> just lays it out, right? So at that point, I say, "Peggy, thank you for all you do." And uh, and we actually had a joke over this at the fan fest as well. And I was very saddened when Paul passed away, but. That's, that's one of my favorite Paul Jones and buddy cold stories. We are moving down, Jeff. We're going to go to 1975 now. So check out this card. This was taking place at Hudson high school in Hudson, Florida. Have you ever been to Hudson, Florida
0: Hudson high school, the gym? I have no idea where that is. Neither do I. And I I know the state pretty well, right? As you would as well. We know. I don't have any idea. Uh, I'm sure Bobby Van Kevlar has a poster from Hudson high school though. I think he actually does. And
1: that this may be where I even got this from. So check out this card. And then I'll, then we're going to, we're going to look at the main event and then I'm going to read you off. All the other matches. We'll do the main event last Bob Root versus Billy Robinson, Omar and Cyclone Negro versus Jim Dillon, Roger Kirby, Florida tag title
0: match right there. Mike George versus Mr. E. So right away, excuse me, this is when Harley was booking, right? This is 100% when Harley yeah, was you, see, you, 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 know, you hear the names of all the guys that went through Kansas City. That's how we, uh, we know that it's Harley booking. Please continue.
1: Yeah, but here was the beauty of when Harley booked. We didn't get Bulldog Bob, Bob Brown in Florida, thank God. So he <laughs> did it right. So he didn't bring like... The guys that that he knew weren't going to make it because he was Harley had to vouch for these guys to Eddie Graham. This was one of Harley's first big booking gigs. So he brings down Dylan and Kirby. Dylan essentially was really a West Texas guy at this stage. Kirby, though, was a central states guy. But Kirby was fantastic. Uh, Deserved more than that. Mike George, central states guy. But at this stage of his career, Mike George was great. The opener, Mitsuraki Hata versus Mike Graham. Now, check out the main event. Hudson High School, Dusty Rhodes versus to be announced. Mm, yes. A little
0: bit of mystery. It,
1: mystery, but what it really says is this is a year and a half after Dusty's turn, the power of Dusty Rhodes. Dusty, they could have said Dusty Rhodes is going to wrestle a goldfish in the ring, and they would have sold it out. And And they realized that because they could have put in... Bob, Bob Roop against Dusty Rhodes, which actually would have made a lot of sense at that stage. Instead, all they're saying is Dusty Rhodes is going to be wrestling in the main event. We don't know against who they're still going to sell the fucking place out, which I. uh,
0: Pardon me, there you go. That's your uh, your weekly Barry Burp. Go ahead. Got
1: my weekly uh, Barry Burp in there. So I, I found that interesting. Moving on to a year later, November 2nd, 1976. And Jeff, we're starting to wrap up first time ever. Ox Baker versus Jack Briscoe and Ox Baker wins by count out of the ring. Ah, <sighs> Ox Baker. So Ox Baker was never a great wrestler. You weren't going to see a guy have great matches. He had a great presence. Ox Baker was very striking, but I can tell you in the first time I ever saw Ox Baker was right around this time. And he was a little scary. You know, there, there was something to that. But Jack Briscoe, not really the best opponent for a guy like Oxbaker. Bit of a
0: conflict of uh, you know, wrestling styles, I'll just yeah. say. Yeah,
1: and and to Jack Briscoe's credit, he probably made Oxbaker look good, uh, I would have to think. But th- this had to be a tough matchup, and these two did not work together past a, a week or two. The next match on the card, which I really like a lot, Bob Backlund and Steve Kern versus the Hollywood Blondes so much i could say about this matchup steve kern everybody knows what i think about steve kern one of the greats of all time bob Backlin at this stage was just tremendous i had a, an opportunity this past weekend to spend a lot of time with bob bob's table was directly next to mine at the fan fest in connecticut put on by our old friend captain's corner nick massey and bob and i also were there early we spent a half an hour between nine thirty and ten o'clock, just talking about his career, working in Florida, and then Bob spent about ten minutes giving me uh, exercise tips on things I could <laughs> the do. The old so,
0: step, the old step test. Yeah, go ahead. You think you're fucking
1: around now, Jeff? That's a hundred percent what he said. No,
0: like, I, you know, I had he, dinner with Bob, and that's what Bob the, did with right? us at the dinner.
1: So Bob proceeded to tell me about uh, he still does the Harvard step test. I believe it's two hours per day at his height, Jeff. He was doing it at five hours per day. Wow. So on a physical level, but on a mental level, how the fuck could you do that for five hours per day? Somehow Bob Backlund has mastered that. He uses something now called a wheel, which is, I guess, a wheel with a bar through it, and he rolls back and forth. Bob said he was never much of a weightlifter, if at all. Everything was done either through calisthenics, or the wheel, the, the wheel that I just talked about. And then he was telling me about Jim in a box, which is something that you can now buy. I don't know anything more about it, but Bob is, and you, you had dinner with him and Bob is unique. Bob is socially a little awkward. That's safe. That's safe. Yeah, to
0: say. Fair to say,
1: fair to say. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. He's just, this is the so way. Why is he living the Mr. Backland gimmick there? He was naughty. He was very quiet. Okay. He was very gentle. And I think the Mr. Back, if I had to uh, psychoanalyze this with my my three credits from college on uh, on psychology, Bob used Mr. Backlund because he is a very quiet, shy guy. And that Mr. Backlund is a way that he can come out and release all of that. But he did not. He was very quiet, very humble. He's very nondescript on every level, but he had packed his breakfast and lunch in a little, a little cooler type of deal. And it's a cooler. I'm going to assume he's had since his WWWF days, because it was beat up beyond belief. But in that you had raw carrots, you had grapes, you had pretzels filled with peanut butter, a turkey sandwich on wheat bread with no con no mayo nothing fattening like he's real serious about this shit that's, and, a, you know, that's a
0: little dry for me on a turkey sandwich sir.
1: oh absolutely uh, i'm gonna and need can... to
0: have a little little light mayo and some dark mustard that would make it fine for me give me as much mayo as you want to give me i love <laughs> it, you,
1: know? <laughs> I, you know i i and i respect bob Backlund because he's in his early 70s he could easily not not just kick our asses he could outrun us he could do anything even at the height of our life, I think that's what incredible shape he's in. I really do like him. I really have the ultimate respect for the guy. And then their opponents that night, the Hollywood Blondes. And the Hollywood Blondes, as great we team, know them, Jeff, yeah, and they didn't make it past 76. This yeah. was about the end. I think Florida was their last run. There was a Hollywood Blondes tag team that worked Memphis a few months later, but it wasn't Buddy Roberts. And I remember I had a very heated, spirited debate on the old Kayfabe Memories message board that I believe the Arcadian Vanguard now owns. And we had this spirited debate where people were trying to tell me that Buddy Roberts was there. And I was like, no, that was actually Sonny Rogers and Jerry Brown. And Sonny Rogers was the brother of Buddy Roberts. Sonny Rogers was a, uh, a carpenter, a, a basically a job guy in the 70s, maybe in the early 80s as well, looked a little bit like Buddy, not tremendously, but a little bit. But for whatever reason, Buddy uh, wound up going single. Buddy came back to Florida as a single in 77. And then Buddy was off the radar for a couple years. But coincidentally, A young wrestler named Dale Valentine was working in San Antonio with Johnny Valentine as his manager. And Dale Valentine was was Buddy Roberts. And that whole story is so unique to me on so many levels because Buddy Roberts, again, part of a great tag team, held the Florida tag titles twice with Jerry Brown. And then he comes back in the early part of 77 and he's basically a prelim mid-card at best. Sticks around, but the booker at that time in Florida was Johnny Valentine. And Johnny Valentine took took Buddy Roberts to Texas where and Johnny became the booker out in San Antonio, changed his name and Dale Valentine was a baby face and got a huge push. Crazy, right? Wow. So, okay. Is that uh, wrapping up this week? No, and Bans- Or you still got more. Up. I got more. I just had to take a swig of water.
0: I'm going to work man. Go ahead.
1: Absolutely. Two other matches. And the last one, Jeff, will be the one that I referenced at the beginning of this segment. Uh, we're going to move to 1980. It's a cage match. Dusty Rhodes and Rooster Humperdink defeating Lord Al Hayes and Bobby Jaggers. This is a rare instance of a babyface manager that got over huge. And in most cases, we know the kiss of death for a wrestler or a manager is turning a babyface. It, you, a babyface manager doesn't work in wrestling. This worked, and this is where Rooster Humperdinck was Dusty's slave for 30 days. It was 30 days in the hole. Dusty had defeated Ivan Koloff, I believe it was, and he got uh, he got hum- It wasn't Koloff. I forget who it was. Maybe it was Bobby Jaggers. Anyways, he got Rooster Humperdinck for 30 days, and uh, And and they actually made a great team. It was a lot of fun. And they feuded with Bobby Jaggers and Lord Al Hayes. And really that big feud right there was Rooster Humperdinck and Lord Al Hayes. And Lord Al Hayes, I mean, you know, the majority, 90% of wrestling fans only know him as this cartoonish figure from the WWF. Lord Al Hayes, in his heyday as a worker... This this was a British wrestler that was trained, you know, the in the British style of wrestling. He was fucking fantastic as an interview, just tremendous. He, this guy was a a, a really exuded evil. arrogance. He was he was Absolutely. really good. He was really good. He really was. And Jeff the last match, and this was the one 40 years ago today in West Palm Beach, the babyface tag team of Bugsy McGraw and Charlie Cook facing what I think is one of the great tag teams that you've never heard a word about the spoiler
0: and the assassin. Hmm. Yes. That's jo- those guys, right? Yeah. Jody Hamilton and Don Jardine. That's good stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I know that Jody is one of your favorites. Rest in peace,
1: Jody Hamilton. That's what I got, Jeff, this date in CWF history.
0: All right. So Barry, why don't we now we're going to jump way ahead in the old time machine from back in 1981. Let's talk AEW, and let's talk last night's Dynamite episode. Uh, I have a few thoughts. Uh, First of all, overall, what did you think of the show? Before we get into specifics. Overall, I liked the show. It would take a lot for me to
1: dislike it because I am a fan. So overall, I liked the show. Okay.
0: So here are my thoughts. First of all, I want to ask you. When CM Punk first came in, <laughs> yes, super hot. I, I mean yeah, like yeah. he you know, let's remember that event in Chicago. He was just on fire. And they're having him come in and maybe it's him rounding himself into into back into wrestling shape because he let's be honest, mm-hmm. took a few years off or what, but do you think some of the fire, some of the heat surrounding CM Punk when he showed up in AEW has waned a bit? Absolutely. Yes. They have
1: and what I would say, so first, I, I do think the match he had last night was the best out of the five matches he's had on, right? Two. Yes. Two pay- no, the, yeah. I, I would think so, that too. I, I think, it, and I think Bobby Fish was the right guy. They were able to actually wrestle a lot. And he did a couple of his spots that in his earlier matches, he was very slow in doing them. They were telegraphed and you could see it last night. They were more fluid. This is what I'm going to say when it comes to CM Punk. They have through the booking, they have devalued CM Punk tremendously. And to that end, CM Punk has let himself be, you know, I think he has a lot of creative control and I think if he had said, "You know what? Keep me off TV, keep me on pay-per-views, maybe one TV match, something," that could have worked. Where I find fault in the booking is he's been exposed to the fact that not only is he not the best in the world, he's not the best on that weekly television show. (laughs) Like, at at, you know, there's probably five to ten guys that are better than him at this point, and there's nothing that separates, other than his name, there's nothing that separates CM Punk from maybe a member of the Dark Order. You know, there's just, I don't, you know, I'm hard-pressed to say that CM Punk is this, great value to a wrestling company now and he's absolutely not had they kept him special booking been a little smarter I think things would have been different I also put part of this on CM Punk because only now only last night am I seeing improvement with his cardio you look at the first couple of matches he had back at, in at AEW and this guy was blown up do you see and I, I'm sure we'll talk about it Chris Jericho couldn't even talk because oh, yeah. Just he, was, that so he blown was blown up, up. exactly yeah. from doing the run in. He was so blown up he couldn't even talk, and you could see him wheezing and wheezing. Yeah. And let I me, feel
0: let me spit out these Aerosmith lyrics <laughs>
1: <laughs> because and look, we've we've always said we like Jericho, but we also understand the limitations. Currently, we get it. Uh, yes, but with CM Punk you know, if I knew that I was going to be signing what was essentially a million dollar contract with AEW, that's what I'm assuming CM Punk got. Wouldn't I do everything in my power to get my cardio at the next level? Like, wouldn't I hire a personal and maybe he has, but you know, I would hire a personal trainer. I would be working out 24 hours a day, watching what I eat to get my cardio back. I'd be in the wrestling ring behind the scenes, eight hours a day to the point that I couldn't walk anymore because when you do put me on TV, I want to present the best CM Punk. That makes sense, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. And let me just ask you, uh, and you're absolutely spot on about this uh, match with Bobby Fish was the best we've seen out of CM Punk. Now, that being said, if you recall the finish to that match, did someone kick out late that's what it looks
1: like and it looks I don't know if he kicked out late I don't know what it was but they made reference to it somebody said it looked like he kicked out one-tenth of a second and then I think Excalibur chimed in and said that looked like one one hundredth of a second
0: to me because when the when the pin happened you see Punk look at the referee like that's not when it was supposed to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we still had another minute to go. I think it was real close to being the the finish of the match, but I think what happened and, you know, quite honestly, they tell the refs you count that one, two, three, like it's a shoot. And if whether it was Bobby fish didn't kick out, whether or not punk didn't let him up, whatever, it just seemed to me like there might've been a miss a misstep there. So next MJF is, He's so friggin' good, uh, especially on the mic. His character is awesome. I love the fact that he's got the two flunkies around him, but as good as he is, do you think, uh, and I, I will say not just see uh, MJF cause he's not the only one that does it in the company. Sure. Is the cursing too much? Is it getting to the point where, cause see, I always feel like if you're going to curse, that's fine. But if you curse every single week, it loses its meaning, it loses its effectiveness.
1: Yeah, and look, we've we've debated that on our on the podcast as well, is that you know This one is of the, the first time we're bringing up Kiesa Fiuse. Yeah, and look, we still we still use profanity, but I don't think I think when we use profanity now, it's just conversational profanity. It's just if the way I talk to you, if I say fucking, that's just the way that we speak. I don't have an issue with the profanity because I like the fact that it's setting them apart. And certainly after watching dark side of the ring, the XPW episode where they talked about buttholes and assholes and gaping vagina, all that shit. I, you know, I was surprised that was allowed on, uh, on TV, but it is vice. So of course that's allowed. That doesn't bother me. I was going to text you last night and I was going to say, I think MJF may be the most effective, Effective heel that we have seen in the last 20 or 30 years. And what yeah, do I base really, that on?
0: He's really good. There's no question about that.
1: All that has to happen, Jeff, is the first four or five notes of his theme song. Oh, yeah. And the yeah. fucking place. It was that was so awesome. They, they start playing his song. The place is the more booze than you've ever heard in your life. People hate him. And even if they don't, it's wrestling fans understanding that this guy is a douchebag heel. And they're reacting correctly, and I love it,
0: so one of the things he does that I love is he almost does for each city they're in he'll personalize the promo yes. and I'll tell you what I remember back, oh my God, early part of the nineties when w c w was coming to town, and uh i think I think it was with flaherty Flaherty and I went out and uh we saw Jimmy uh Cornette, and we were talking to him, and you know Jimmy used to do uh here they are. Uh, Like if he was in uh, one city, he'd somehow personalize the introduction of the Midnight Express. Well, at the time, this was when Broward County, Florida, and Fort Lauderdale had uh, Sheriff Nick Navarro, uh, who was very controversial. Sheriff Nick, uh, (laughs) he he, uh, basically tried to create a little fiefdom for himself. Uh, first time we've ever used the word fiefdom on this show, by the way. But, fiefdom? Yeah. One of the things he used to do was he had his uh, – the the chemists that worked for the sheriff's office make their own cocaine. And oh. then he would have his undercover cops go out there, and when people would buy the cocaine, oh, okay, we're taking you in. And that was the way that he dealt with the cocaine issue. Uh, it's shocking that in South Florida there was a cocaine issue at one point, Barry, I know. But so Sheriff yeah. Nick – do you know
1: Sheriff's Sheriff Nick's greatest legacy? Do you do you know what that is? Oh, please tell us. Absolutely. Sheriff Nick, so everybody has seen the Spring Break Fort Lauderdale movies where the boys are. Spring break in Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale was the apex of spring break for decades. Sheriff Nick and his infinite wisdom decided that they were not going to allow spring break to take place in Lauderdale any longer. And they put forth all these curfews, like 10 p.m., no alcohol, all this stuff. Kids stopped coming. We, South Florida and Fort Lauderdale lost billions of dollars because they all went to Tampa. They went to Mexico, parts of Texas, anywhere that there was a beach. Young kids well, it essentially
0: cross. moved its way up the coast to Daytona first. Yes, exactly. Yep. And then it went over to the panhandle to like Pensacola and Panama City and stuff like that and uh you know, it was it was one of those things where what they were doing for what well, like around 85 or 86 uh here we are getting off on one of these tangents again Barry, but uh they did this deal as you mentioned where suddenly, oh, people drinking beer on the beach is shocking and horrific. And it wasn't just Nick, it was like the city officials of a uh, of Fort Lauderdale also, and so what they what they would do is they decided uh, well beer is illegal on the beach so and because I had started working at the courthouse we literally we went from having a magistrate docket and magistrate docket for those of you that don't know uh, you know if you get arrested for something the next morning you go in front of a judge and nowadays ninety nine percent of the country when you see a magistrate docket it's always on video and you see the guy talking to the judge who's on camera. And okay, you're charged with such and such. Your bond is hundred dollars. Uh, you know, go ahead and make your bond, or maybe they'll offer them time served, depending if it's a small charge. So what happened was when they started arresting people for having a beer, open beer on the beach, our dockets went from being maybe fifty to seventy-five cases a day to three hundred cases a day. A- and I think the mindset was, uh, I- and I'm not trying to defend what he did. I'm just trying to look at it from his point of view. Uh, number one they would uh, stop the drunken behavior on the beach and they wanted families to still be able to come to the beach. Uh, Number two, they felt, well, if we can get people to, you know, pay some court costs, pay some bonds, we're getting a little bit of income for the County, but all that being said, you're absolutely right. What happened was the kids just stopped coming. They just moved up to yeah. Daytona, and Daytona was like, hey, come on. And then it got to be a little hectic for Daytona, and then the kids moved over to, the, you know, the Pensacola and, uh, you know, the places off uh, in Texas. Uh, what's the island right off of the coast of Texas? I can't think of it now. But, you know, Galveston. they— Galveston? Uh, well, it's off Galveston. There's, an, there's a particular island oh, where they— Oh, San— uh, South Padre? Oh, yeah, San Padre or South Padre, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it, what it is is it moves every couple of years as the officials, uh, you know, feign outrage that oh my God, there are kids actually drinking on the beach here, and so they'll do some sort of crackdown, and they'll just move to a different part of the either the state or the country where they don't care for a while, and it's like this never-ending wheel that keeps rotating and rotating. Anyway, so back to CM Punk. That's a long-winded way. <laughs> back <to CM> Punk. <laughs> Sheriff Nick Navarro. From, <laughs> yes. how, the, how did we do this? How did we get on I this? don't know. How did we get to Sheriff right. Nick Navarro? Yeah, <laughs> from CM Punk, right. All right. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, getting back to uh, MJF. So the uh, he's such a great heel. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, so what we did with Jim Cornette, I just uh, you know, I realized what I had been talking about, was we told uh, Jimmy, we said, you got to go out there during your promo for, for the boys and mention Nick Navarro. So, Sunrise Musical Theater, Jim Cornette comes out there, and he's introducing me. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are. Sheriff Nick Navarro's favorite tag team, beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan, the Midnight Express. And the crowd just goes (laughs) fucking apeshit. Boo! Because by that point, everybody fucking hated Nick Navarro and what he was doing. And, you know, like uh, the fact that he was being uh, sort of an asshole in the MJF way. And in that way, MJF last night in Boston, he comes out there. And, you know, he'll crack on Boston women. And, and, you know, when he goes to, you know, the next city goes to Pittsburgh, New York, whatever, he'll mention something about the city. And that's absolute genius. And whether it's somebody, hey, here's a suggestion, uh, mention this, uh, you know, or uh, if you go to Boston, uh, come out wearing a Yankees jersey. Or if you go to New York, come out wearing a Boston jersey. There's all kinds of things that you can do to personalize and localize your promo and your gimmick that can get your heat with the fans. That's ultimately what I wanted to say about him and what he does so well, bear.
1: Yeah. And he, you know, here's the thing too. Look, guys have been doing this as long as uh professional wrestling has been around guys will get to a city and it's usually some sort of a crack about uh, the sports team. Occasionally it'll could be about the females in the city, but MJF has taken this to a completely different level. And it's, I would be, you know, if you watched as he was walking to the ring, he was challenging fans to jump the railing and punch him in the face. So I would be concerned that if he continues on this road, eventually, and the irony is I have heard MJF outside of the ring is the nicest, most humble, well-educated, well-mannered individual you'll ever meet. Completely the opposite of the character he portrays. But I do think that eventually he's going to face an issue. There is just, there is no way he's not that if you're challenging fans to jump the railing and he's sticking his chin out and saying, go take a swing at me, eventually something's going to happen.
0: And when you, well, it always, it also helps that you got two guys walking with you.
1: Oh no, um, no. And you've got plenty of security, but I, I, what I'm thinking is somebody will get him outside of the arena Oh, okay.
0: That's
1: fair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it won't be right. Nobody's going to jump. I mean, somebody could jump over the railing, but I'm thinking at some point he's going to be in an airport. There's going to be a guy that, uh, you know, that 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 never got his GED, uh, maybe never even went to high school. Maybe he's not. Has a little beer courage. Got a little beer courage, and he's not that bright, and uh, he's going to see MJF, and he's going to, you know, he's going to, you know, when you talk about the women of. of Cincinnati or wherever he's talking about, you know, that's my mother and I'm going to fuck you up now. And that's where I think, I think he is while I think it's effective because he is getting people to hate him. I, at some point I, he's setting himself up for an incident that's going to take place outside the ring. That's what I'm, I think.
0: Okay. So next, what did you think of Cody's promo?
1: I thought it was unbelievable. I, so I like, let me, let me, I like Cody. I I don't love Cody the wrestler because he just, you know, I I do I don't think Cody's great. And I, that's no secret with that. But there's a lot about Cody that I like. First, I like having the guts to leave the WWE before everybody else was doing it, you know. It, he was really one of those guys that was unhappy with his positioning there and he decided to leave and he went to ROH and I get the feeling like Cody is a really smart guy, and you could listen to his promo last night, and he is a really smart guy. The way he articulated himself, that's I found that very intelligent. I don't know, at the end of the day, if it's going to be enough to get fans back on his side, but maybe this is all part of it, because maybe Cody comes out, he says... I could take the easy way out and I could turn heel because you're booing me, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to win your faith back or however he phrased it. However, if that doesn't work, Cody can be an even bigger heel by saying, I tricked all you fucking marks.
0: I, you know, yeah, please. uh, No, I was watching it last night. And that's one of the things I thought of was that this is a long play where he eventually does it. Yep. It's it's absolute genius. And, and I don't know if it's him, if it's Arn, if it's him and Arn, if it's him, Arn and a couple other people, I don't know. If it's the long play for him to turn, it's it's absolute genius. If it's just stubborn no, I don't want to, you can't make me, that's not smart. Uh, you know. Uh but the the promo was very effective. He uh, you know, he humbled himself and he said, you know, like he basically acknowledged the fact that they're booing him. And usually think about it. When Roman Reigns was a baby face and was getting booed, they would never acknowledge the fact he was getting booed. Right. And you know, there, there have been different guys out there that have been like heels. You you know, remember when the horsemen were, were the lead heels and they would get cheered and you know, they would sit there and say, well, you know, it appears the horsemen have got their uh, small section of fans, uh, you know, but the majority of the people were cheering for dusty rush. I mean, you know, they would at least acknowledge the fact that there were people cheering for the horsemen And so for Cody to basically come out and say, okay, I I get it. Some of you are booing me. And he made a very, I hate to say this, smart decision not to have the wife come out with him. Because, boy, if you want to get heat, bring the wife out to ring with you because she is not well liked. That being said, if they're doing this long play and he does turn heel, then you bring the wife out with you and boom. Then she's being effective and then she's uh, she's doing – Exactly what they want her to do, which is to be a magnet at ringside. Now, all that being said, Cody's promo is really good stuff. Bringing out Andrade to begin a program, I, I have no problem with. Here's what I do have a, not only a problem, a real problem with. They have turned Malachi Black into Andrade Stooge. And that I, yeah. really pisses me off. But I don't know if that's going
1: to... I don't see that as a long-term deal. I, I think that's extremely short-term. I think, I don't know if it's even stooge or it's an alliance.
0: I, that guy I, was so good on his yes, own and he he, his promos, his his uh, ring uh, introduction, uh, the the walk down to the ring was so good, and he's good in the ring. His His gimmick is good, and if they just take him – and make them part of an alliance with another. And, and I understand they want to push Andrade. I don't, and I don't have a problem with that, but th- those are two guys that are really effective on their own that don't need to be together. And, you know, don't good Lord, don't create another friggin' faction. You've got enough factions in that company, you know, where they have like five and it's just like, everybody has to be in fact. Can't there be one guy that's just out there on his own and, he fucks people up because he's a badass, you know? That's what I want out of Malachi Black's character. Not like, ooh, let me form this alliance so we can go after Cody Rhodes. No, no, I don't want that. Yeah.
1: There are a lot of factions, and, and they've, you know, it's like interesting. It's like the death triangle. There's still a faction, but they're only together sometimes. It was kind of like the inner circle. You don't you know, they're not together for a few months and then they're back together. So I don't even know how many factions you've got at this stage. I'll tell you what, though, and I know we're going to talk about the Dark Order. But just as a side note, I remember, I think, the first TV show and the Dark Order was on. And I remember sitting there going, how in God's name, who came up with this? And this is going to fail miserably. And then you watch the Dark Order and they're having really good matches
0: like, they are you know. No, the st- and then at this point, a couple of years later. It's a fun gimmick. It's, you know, uh, it's entertaining when they're doing interviews, the matches. They've got some guys that really know how to a work and b work their gimmick. And, you know, and that's uh, they're very effective in their role. I don't see them as like ever being top of the card, but as a mid card, I even hate to say gimmick because they've got guys that can work, but mid card, no problem at all. They're very effective in that role. And you know, getting their uh, time on camera, I don't have a problem with, which brings us, since you brought up them, very the main event. I sit there and watched the main event, and then I watched the uh the all elite guys uh or whatever come down to the ring, and all I kept thinking about was, oh my god, Jim Cornette's gonna lose his fucking mind. These guys are coming out in costumes. Yeah. So before is. I before yeah. I tell you what I thought of it, what did you think of all that? Well, I didn't I didn't love it.
1: And uh I I can I like comedy, if it if it's effective. And I gotta say I liked I liked the ending with the Stay Puff Marshmallow. First off, I'm a huge Ghost Benji Fido's favorite movie. I'm a huge Ghostbusters fan.
0: Uh, the original Ghost. The oh yeah, the not original. the abomination that came out a few years ago.
1: No, no, or the new one that's coming out that I believe they were playing a trailer for during the show last night. Not a fan of. Uh, of them coming out as the ghostbusters. Somebody, uh, somebody did mention on our, in our Facebook group. And if you're not a member of our Facebook group, you need to figure out uh, how to get on Facebook and become a member. It's a lot of fun, but somebody mentioned that Britt Baker should have been the, uh, the, uh, what's her name? Sigourney Weaver character, Dana Barrett, which I thought was good. I didn't, I didn't like it. I, uh, I have no, there is no Dana, There's only Zool. Zool, exactly. I have no problem with with them doing a Halloween theme because WWE has done similar shit. I just don't like when you know the Proton Pack is used as a weapon in the match, which Kenny Omega did, and then they, you know, all that other shit. I just wasn't crazy about any of that. The wrestling itself, not bad at all. Again, the Dark Order guys are really—they've really come. In the last two years, a trim, such a long way, and and guys like John Silver and uh, Alex Reynolds, Stu Grayson, Evil Uno, they you know these guys really are producing quality matches on a weekly basis.
0: By the uh, way, uh, just a little side note here: the match that Moxley had with Ten, I hated it. Uh, was that a gig, or did he hit? Because I was watching to figure out where, yes. did, and he hit the ring post, and I didn't know. Of course, famously at a UWF tournament, 1986 or whatever, when Jim Duggan caught the ring oh. post and, and opened himself up horribly. And when I saw that and the way he was bleeding, I wondered was, did he gig or did he hit the friggin' ring post and maybe catch a bolt or something? What do you think? Yeah. And just to, a context of what Jeff just
1: said, it was the bolt that got Jim Duggan in the in the head and just opened him up that just imagine that. Oh my God. I don't know. So here was the thing. So Moxley rips open the mask. Moxley is biting him. Then he throws him into the ring post. And next, thing you know, he comes up and he's bleeding everywhere. My first instinct is, yeah, he gigged himself. This is the end of the match. But when the match was over, doctors got in the ring and they were uh, they were they were putting pressure to stop the bleeding yeah. on his head. So maybe that was an accident. Yeah, I, I didn't like that match, by the
0: way. By the way, do you think, uh, since we mentioned the, the match, uh, Moxley, this new character is kind of changing very slowly? Yeah, uh, is he becoming just a more of the badass character, uh, sort of a Stone Cold Steve Austin kind of thing, or you see maybe a heel turn down the road?
1: It, it's definitely one of those two, and I don't know which direction they're going to go in. My guess is they they may look at that Stone Cold direction but I could see fans turning on him at some point where he would be a full out heel. And I think that would be smart actually.
0: Yeah. Okay. So anyway, just to finish up with the, uh, the cosplay play match, <laughs> uh, when they came out on the ramp and they're dressed in costumes, that didn't bother me. Okay. Right. I think what they should have done is the baby faces could have come out with their costumes. They could have then taken the costumes off. And when the heels came out as the ghostbusters, you got the baby faces run up the ramp and they rip the the costumes off of them. And then it's still a wrestling match. They're not making a joke out of it. And then during the match, you can use that proton pack or whatever. Uh, you can use something like that for a, a heel move. You know, you hit him with the proton back and, and then you throw it outside the ring. Oh, no, I got nothing. I got a, that kind of thing now. So I didn't like the fact that they stayed in the characters in the match. I, I think it was really I know that people much younger than me uh, that are into the whole cosplay, like a certain uh, friend of yours that we had lunch with in Philadelphia. I'm not going to mention his name because he gets every chance he gets. He mentions Barry Rose's name. Uh, But I will say, I think that the cosplay thing could have been done. And I like the finish. Okay. I like the fact that, Oh, there's a state puff man and uh, they've tricked the heels. That was really good. I didn't like the uh, stuff with you know them coming out still wearing the costumes. That to me it seemed like. Uh, I, and I I've seen a thread on our, our on our group today where people seem to like it, and it was mainly younger fans. I think I, I just I can't imagine. And maybe this is a whole uh, you know we're being old farts get off my lawn kind of thing. Sure. I don't know that people our age would have been as big a fan of it as younger people while at the same time admitting that I really liked the ending. It was really clever, really effective. I liked the fact that you had the dark order put over the elite guys, you know, which that was a nice little surprise. Uh, so the ending, I really liked the middle part of it after the entrances. I was not as big a fan of bear.
1: Yeah. it's I, I don't know. I just, it, when you're doing cosplay, you're doing comedy. And again, I think comedy could have, a place on a, on a wrestling show, I would definitely put it in the main event, right? That, that, that to me is bad booking to put it in the main event. And, and the truth is I'm not, I'm not a, I don't love a lot of the comedy,
0: but I, you know, I, <sighs> if they had done, let's put it this way. If they had done a thing where they have the elite guys come out dressed as the Ghostbusters and they're doing a heel promo and, you know, like, oh, you know, no one's better than us, blah, 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 blah. And then the the um, dark order comes out and they do a thing where they challenge them. Okay. We're going to meet you at the pay-per-view and then they do a run-in. They do a script. That's fine. But when you do a match wearing a costume, th- that's, that's very like, I'm going to, I'm going to really, uh, that's very XPW ish to me, you know? Yeah. I, yeah you're that, right. That's a very, it comes off to me. Like it's very minor league ish. And uh, you know, based on the guy's, that we just talked about the, you know, the guys uh, in the elite all are, are really strong wrestlers. The guys in the dark quarters. Hey, like you said, that gimmick has has really evolved and gotten better. The guys in the, in the group have gotten better in the ring. Did you just take a bump there, Barry or what? <laughs> That's what it sounded like, right? <laughs> ripped off the headphones and everything. Yes. I'm so disgusted with your opinion. <laughs> I'm ripped off my That's headphones. it. I'm, I'm out. But, uh, so anyway, so now that being said, Let's move on. I got a couple things we want to mention, Barry. Our good friend, Rick Lennon. Uh, L- Rick Lennon is a guy that he will occasionally post his artwork uh, in our group. He does, like, uh, pencil art and, like, dot art, where he'll do an artist uh, version, yeah, like a movie character or something like that. And he really does amazing work. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Rick will be appearing on November 20th in Morgantown, North Carolina, as part of a Comic-Con at the Colette Street Rec Center. So uh, I don't exactly know where Morgantown is. I know we do have listeners and fans from our group that live in North Carolina. So if you are in a uh, reasonable driving distance, please support our friend Rick. Uh, go out there uh, sh- for the brothership and say, hey, man, we're here for you. Uh, maybe if you uh, if you can, maybe purchase something from Rick. That would really be a, g- a good way of supporting a brothershipper. And, uh, so November 20th, Morgantown North Carolina to comic con, please go and, uh, and participate and help Rick, uh, who's a member of our group and a good guy bear. And Jeff, you said it's the Colette rec center. It's the Colette street rec center. Gotcha. I think if I'm
1: correct, I think John McAdam actually had a date at the, well, where has he
0: not had a date? Well, that was what In my between point was dates. Of course, he offers bad opinions on George Carlin, not being funny. Uh, Manami Toyota not being as good as Charlotte. I'm just wondering if John was kidding or if he was drunk at the time he makes those opinions, but I digress. Barry, you have somebody that you wanted to discuss also. Yeah, so really good friend of the show. And he's a guy that he's quiet, uh, but he's
1: kind of a lurker in our Facebook group. He listens to every episode and I had a chance to meet him at the gathering this past summer, Terry Holbrooks. Terry, uh, for some of you may, may remember about a year, year and a half ago, he had a kidney transplant and uh, Terry had posted about it in our group. So I get a message yesterday morning from a good friend of his that I also met at the gathering. And he says, hey, I just wanted to make you aware Terry has been in the hospital he is uh, very ill he has covid he is very ill and i get on terry's facebook page and it sounds like it's very dire he is on a ventilator he is unable to communicate and it sounds like he's not doing well and i got to tell you terry is just a a sweetheart of a human being so we all are for you you know everything from our thoughts to our prayers to uh all the support that you need terry I am going to see if uh, we can get your wife to play this for you. We love you,
0: brother. Get stronger, and we look forward to seeing you again. Terry, kick out at the two-count, brother. That's all we got to say. The brothershipers have got your back. So, Barry, Dark Side of the Rings episode this past week on XPW. I understand you finally had a chance to watch it. Tell me if you agree Uh, That like me, after you watch the episode, you kind of felt like you needed to take a shower. I got to tell you. So you
1: said that I I, a bunch of people said that I think every comment was, you know, like, what did I just watch? I feel dirty. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I didn't have the same response. That being said, yes, I roll around in the mud with pigs, certainly. But at the same time, there wasn't a lot of new information that was in there. Uh, Melter, and this is you know, Melter gets, and this is what my immediate thought. Melter gets knocked a lot. Melter covered XPW all the way through, all the way through Rob Zakari's legal issues, and he also covered Messiah having his thumb cut off, which uh, I remember that was a, a big story back in those days. So I I just didn't get a whole lot from it. I I think what I liked about the episode, the fact that Messiah actually was uh was there and and gave a great interview. Seems like he's doing well. I did a little Google search on him after he's been married for, I don't know, a decade or two. He's got a couple of children. Seems like a stable guy. You know, Rob Black, everything that I remembered about Rob Black, pretty accurate, just scuzzy at the end of the day. And I, I think he was responsible. And there was a the a porno actress that like Jessica Darlin, I believe was her name. And, and she said something that was very accurate that Rob Rob Zakari was on the forefront of porno with ushering in this no holds barred, how extreme can we go, how vile, how gross, how disgusting in a lot of ways can we go, which is almost the norm and commonplace now. And she is accurate about that. As far as the wrestling, you know, I I I guess I'm hard pressed to think, and I I'm gonna have to assume different time, different place even though it was only 20 years ago, right? Even less in some cases. But the fact that so much of this was taking place, and a lot of this stuff looked highly illegal. I think the New Jack throwing Vic Grimes off of the scaffolding, which I remember was a big deal back then, Jeff, 20 years ago. And just thinking, how is New Jack not being charged with attempted murder or whatever it is with this? Uh, and, And to that end, did New Jack, Jeff, did he appear to be possibly inebriated or under the influence? That, during that this would recording? certainly
0: be a shock if he was. Uh, yeah. Was and, and, and for I know he's got
1: fans in our group, so this is, you know, rest in peace. But as I'm watching it, I I, I believe, at least in my opinion, he might have been on something. I just I thought, I don't know. I didn't get a whole lot from it. It was uh, at the end of the day, it was sad. It was it was Carney's trying to out Carnie each other. And no one wins in the end. That's kind of what I got from it.
0: Well, you know, we mentioned uh, I, I mentioned very briefly at the end of the show last week when we were talking about the uh, the Luna Vachon, uh episode. And uh, am I correct? You haven't watched that one yet? That one I have not watched. OK. Correctly. So one of the things I said was a lot of times when you're dealing with some of the people that I knew in South Florida uh, that basically spent their entire life uh, in the business. In South Florida, it, you know, they'd have a couple of shots here or there, but, you know, and the tendency is to think that they're like, quote unquote, part of the business, you know, and, you know, you're talking about people that are working for 25 bucks a shot. Are you really part of the business there? You know, and as I sat and watched these guys for XPW and the women, it really, are you part of the business? Uh, If you're you're working and your job is to get hit over the head with a fucking light bulb, Uh, if your job is to, you know, stand there and and get yourself hung like you're on a cross and have somebody hit you over the head because you didn't fucking take a bump the way the owner wanted you to. And the guy still that guy's still wrestling, isn't he? What's his name? Luke Hawks. You know, Luke Hawks, Luke, yeah. he was Luke, the altar boy. Yeah. Great. And, and yeah. you know, like I'm sitting there thinking that was how, sad actually that how was, this guy yeah. didn't friggin pull a gun out and go after the fucker that ordered that, you know, uh, I didn't understand that. I, I, and I'll be honest with you. I went into this really not knowing anything about XPW and not to not to interrupt you, Jeff, but it, and it, to that point, you're
1: right about him. But at the same time, they, they gave a free pass to uh to the guy, what was his name? Was it who? Messiah? The guy was I,
0: Supreme.
1: I, Supreme, thank yes. you, yeah. Supreme. But he gives him a, a pass. They because you know because he's the uncle of Chaos, who was another XPW wrestler, and I guess because he's deceased, he gets a free pass. But I mean, he's laying in these horrific chair shots, even as the force of the chair shots actually breaks. The one rope or whatever they had him because they, they had him like on an altar, literally on an altar. Like they did the Sandman in ECW and he's just laying in these chair shots. And but nobody says a word about that guy. Like, that's OK.
0: And he's just guy, following and, orders. And right. Luke, guy, I think he said, has still has a dent in his, yeah. in his like skull. From yeah. It. But, you know, I, I'm watching this and I'm like, really, is this uh, what's and I'm saying this not like it's something that just happened yesterday. It's something that happened 15, 20 years ago. I'm watching this. and I'm going, this is not, this is like garbage to me. This isn't something I would not go to one of those shows. I, and trust me, I went to an ECW show at the ECW arena. Uh, I went to shows uh, at a uh, friggin' uh, VFW or American Legion hall where the gimmick was uh, they had a Christmas tree. Oh, those Bobby Rogers shows, Barry, they had a Christmas tree that was loaded with gimmicks. And the match was you uh, get out of the ring and you're able to grab whatever gimmick you want to use on your opponent, you know, but it was like, it was a goof watching that, you know, and I watched this program on XPW, and this is, you know, it's just different level. And I don't know what it is. It's not wrestling, you know, uh, It the combination of wrestling and pornography somehow, somehow seems appropriate, you know, uh, because I got to say, I knew the name XPW. I had heard the name Rob Black. Most of the other people I did not really know about cuz I wasn't following XPW, you know. Oh, let me see what's going on in XPW this week. Uh and as I started watching it, I was like, I can probably understand why I wasn't watching it because you know, if you're having a match where, you know, if these hardcore death matches where the object is to hit your opponent over the head with a light bulb, or some sort of glass fixture or to set the ring on fire or to see who can, you know, give blood to the blood bank because you slice your fucking head open. You, you're not a wrestler. You're just a geek. You know, you might as well go work in the fucking circus. And when the, you know, the ringmaster says, and here he is and just stand there and just start fucking sawing your head off for the amusement of the people that are there, because that's what it is. It's a geek fest. You might as well go watch fucking cockfighting or something because it's, I don't know what it is, but it's sure the fucking wrestling, Barry. I and I don't think we've ever uh,
1: discussed cockfighting before, so that's that could be a whole other. I think
0: we've discussed cocks before, but I've say, so yeah. You
1: know. Well, and everything. Look, at the end of the day, for me, I I don't care if this is the most popular form of professional wrestling. More power to it, and more power to people. It's not up, not what I want, and I don't care what other people do. And I got to say in some ways if you stop and think about it violence and pornography is a pretty smart business model in the fact that especially a lot of wrestling fans would love to see something violent would love to have a little bit of porn somehow mixed in this obviously just like the title this was extreme and they went to a different level i did get a a a, a real chuckle though in the in the opening of the show as chris jericho was doing his narration Chris Jericho says something to the effect of and Rob Black was leading a a pack of young wrestlers and they show Rob Black walking to the ring with Terry, 60 year old Terry Funk directly behind him. So it was (laughs) like, yeah, that the the placement of that didn't make sense. I just I you know, again, this isn't wrestling to me. I, I would have liked if this had been I would have liked to have seen more of the story between Rob Black and Paul Heyman, because I think that would have been, I think there's a lot there that we don't know. And for whatever reason, this is probably all that they could uncover. But the Messiah thing to me really is, I think that's the crux of the story. The fact that guys broke into his house. And again, we're going off of a story that only Messiah can verify. You know what I mean? There, there was no other witness. So we don't know the real story. We'll take him at his word, I guess, you know, not that that matters, but, but,
0: you know, to have two large guys break into your house. Well, let me just quantify. He didn't say they broke into his house. That's true. You're right. He he said, I'm watching TV or playing a video game. These two guys come in. I think they're friends of my roommates. Oh, Hey man, how you doing? What's going on? And then it's like, you know, he hears them whispering and he turns around and they jump him and start beating the stew out of him. And they literally remove his thumb. They like rip it out. And I asked my wife because my wife's a hand therapist. I said, so good Lord, what kind of friggin' force do you have to use to literally remove the fu- the fucking thumb from some guy's hand? And then she's like, well, like, did he find the thumb? Because of course that's how you reattach it, you know, surgically. And I said, no, I, I don't know if they didn't find it or what, but he doesn't have a thumb now. And so, you know, that was a pretty grisly <laughs> story. And, you know, what I what I loved, I was loving these stories where you hear these people and they're like, oh, yeah, we weren't getting paid. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we were, uh, other than New Jack, who got a shipment of porno, that was his payment, apparently, for something. And he was happy about it. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, but, you know, the people are like, oh, we were doing these. Uh things where we were just destroying our bodies and and we had uh people walking around uh the one one woman says she's talking to some guys he's jerking off and he's getting himself ready for the next porno scene in the next room and it's like well what are your uh what do you ultimately think about x p w oh, if I had to do it all over again I'd do it it was so much fun they all said it they yeah, all that was the great the guy, not just the guy who about lost what a his horrible thumb. fucking experiences, but I would definitely do it again. No question about it. it they all. And, and even the guy who lost his thumb,
1: it, he said it had to do with something leading up to uh, him meeting his wife. I, I think she might have been in the adult entertainment industry without knowing for sure. Uh, and then having daughters. So that was interesting. But they all you're right. It's it, they all we we were you know, we were abused, whether it was physical, whether it was emotional. Uh, we didn't get paid. We, you know, all this negative shit. Best time of my life. And I wouldn't change a thing. Right. All right. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> how, and do you, then the, and, how do you deal with that kind of rationale? Yeah. You know? And
0: then of course there's the, uh, the, the guy, the, the Rob black guy who apparently had some sort of weird game that he and his wife played where she's like a porn star with the very interesting name of Lizzie Borden. And, uh, so that, uh, apparently she would go flirt with guys, and then he would sit there and uh, you know Rob Black would uh, basically be in on the game and say, "Hey yeah she's flirting with you, but uh, at the end of the day uh, she's coming home to fuck me. What do you think about that and it's just like some kind of weird marital sex game they're playing, and uh uh just some very, very uh twisted people uh, to say the least uh not not the least of which was uh, at the very head of the old food chain there, and i don't think it was a big shock that he chose not to take part and the making of this particular episode, Barry. Well, and I think, so, everything I know about the guy is, he's
1: one of the biggest carnies, he's one of the biggest self-promoters in the history of wrestling. Again, if that's wrestling, right? So, when the show ended yesterday, I was kind of intrigued. I was like, wonder whatever happened to this guy. And he is, he's running a cheeseburger joint in Rochester, New York, which he owns. I guess he was from upstate New York. He's somewhere in that area. But, you get on his Facebook page, which he has, he's relaunching XPW. Oh, and lucky he, us. Yeah, well, we'll never see it, Jeff. But he's, yeah. he's he's relaunching XPW with some of the talent that was on the Dark Side of the Ring episode. And what makes it even crazier is you would have thought, even if a lot of this is negative, I'm still going to take part because I can exploit that to run my new promotion. I, I would just have to assume I, I can't see this thing succeeding in any form, I don't know much about the. It's called American Cheeseburger, the restaurant. Again, all verifiable through the the internet, but uh, I have no idea how good the uh, the food is. Because if it was good, Jeff, we'd be talking about the food. But I don't know. I I, I uh, when it was all said and done, I just was like, you know. Well, is this is this eh. a
0: case of there's no such thing as bad publicity? Because you know, if, if he uses this, I think this, so. I think you know. so. And
1: I, the reason I say that, I think I think if you like XPW. Nothing about that episode is going to turn you off there. I I don't think there was a reveal there, you know, that is going to turn you off. And I think that if you were a diehard, ultra violent deathmatch kind of fan, I think you knew what they were already showing and nothing would
0: nothing would turn you off to that. You know, I I find it interesting when you look at sort of the uh, uh, I want to say not a timeline, but the the way that things evolved, I guess is maybe a better way of putting it. Cause you, you think about it. If you go back in wrestling, uh, and, and I'm going to go against my, my best, uh, uh, wish here. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to com- say that it's a wrestling company. Okay. But if you go from like, let's say what they were doing in Memphis or Amarillo, and then you kind of evolve that into, uh, maybe what they were doing, uh, I don't know like uh in another promotion uh, that would go uh like with the uh more violent stuff uh, like say mid south okay and then you take that and you go forward to like uh maybe Memphis with Eddie Gilbert and like how he kind of wanted to take it to that next step you know further and then you get to Paul Heyman and he took it one step further and then you get to this Rob Black guy and he took it one step further and it was e- ever evolving and you sit there and you think my god I wonder if guys like Jackie Fargo had a chance to look at XPW or a uh, Dory Funk senior or, yeah, I mean, you said Terry Funk worked for him, but you know, did they ever sit there and go, good Lord, what the fuck did I start? You know, that, that it's become this. Yeah. Well, but you know what, Jeff,
1: you can take that back and you can look at uh, you can go to the, let's go back to the first porno actors. And I don't know who sure, they are. Yeah. And, and, and back in those, even, you know, oral sex was, I don't want to say it was taboo in the early days of porn, but it was, I guess, you know, it It was, uh, it was the next level. Like, you know what I mean? Anal
0: sex didn't exist in early porn. And well, you know, what's, you know, what's funny is for a long time, uh, Japanese in the Japanese culture. And I'm basing this on when I was over there in 1987, they, they would put uh, on the newsstand. And I don't mean like hiding behind the Brown wrapper like they would with a playboy or a penthouse in this country. But you would see magazines with uh, relatively young women that were exposing their breasts, and it was just completely commonplace. Good lord, that you could actually go to like a little um, one of these things—not uh, not like a, a Coke or a candy machine—but there were machines where you could buy women's panties if you were like some kind of real freak. But what do you mean freak? That no, sounds no. like a great but, idea. What are you talking about? Let me tell about? you something. Let me tell you something. What you couldn't do is they would never show a woman's vagina. That was, oh, no, that was next level taboo. You know, we can sell fucking panties out of a machine uh, and we can show as many tits as you want to see. But God forbid, you, she, you know, you see the friggin' fur down there on, on a woman's vagina. And it's just like this really odd cultural thing. And I, I I don't know that I've ever understood it. And so, you know, is that still the case now? some, you know, 30 something years later, I'm sure it's evolved, uh, you know, and it's changed just like you said, pornography and, you know, pornography, the way that, uh, and you and I talked about this previously off the air, the way that, uh, what used to sort of push the envelope and what now pushes the envelope. And I, I referred to, uh, the beyond the mat movie, uh, where Jake Roberts is talking about life on the road. And he says, you know, you, you go and you're, you're on the road in a motel room and a woman comes there that was at the matches and offers herself to you. And she's willing literally to be with a wrestler slash celebrity. She's willing to do anything. She's willing to degrade herself and do these pretty much uh, unspeakable things. And then that wrestler has to go home and he's with his wife and his wife wants to have missionary sex. And so, you know, Jake Roberts explanation was really, how does that, how does that stimulate you after you have some woman 500 miles away that was w- willing to let loose her inner freak, you know? And I think the evolution of the pornography industry that, you know, started off when we were, uh, you know, fuck, uh, what was that? Uh, I'm having a brain fart, Barry. The, the show that we loved, was a The Deuce? The Deuce. Yeah, yeah, which showed the very beginnings of the pornography industry right. and what they were doing then to what is being done now with people like Rob black and uh, you know, and what he created and think about it. that was like 15 fucking years ago. How much has this evolved from what he was doing 15 years ago to what must be happening now? It's and and to your point about the deuce in, in the, the earlier episodes of the deuce, it was
1: essentially straight sex, normal, what was classified as normal straight sex. And if you remember the last couple of episodes, when the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, And she has that conversation with the guy she's dating, you know, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to do three guys, one in each hole and, but they're going to pay me. And, you know, again, that, that would, I thought that was smart because that was showing the evolution of exactly what porn was, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever the time frame was versus what porn became. And, uh, the question is, and I think porn and wrestling, what a great. You know that it's such a great comparison on a lot of levels. Oh no! From that point of view, it is comparing when, the two because there's a lot of similarities. Become, yeah. When does this become too extreme? At what point do they? Does you know? And look, they still have a lot of this deathmatch stuff in New Jersey, right? They uh, the and it's not Zandig's promotion anymore, but they still have these promotions in New Jersey, and porn continues to evolve, and is you know the government's not shutting them down. They're not going to stop. At what point does it, you know, does it stop evolving? If that's even the if evolution's even the correct term, you know, at what point is enough enough? And that's I I have no answer to that.
0: So, Mary, before we go, one last plug, my man. At the time this comes out, we'll be mere days away from the big fan fest in Lutz, Florida. You know what that means for the fans? that means they will no longer have to hear this <laughs> about the Suncoast Highway and all that other kind of West stuff. Suncoast and Portillo's. And One more all, time you mention our, all the stuff that's going to be happening this coming weekend. So here's the crazy thing. The day that
1: we're recording this, a newspaper article came out at uh, the Tampa Bay Times, which talked about the CWF Archives Facebook group and then tied that into the upcoming Fan Fest. So I think I've added to the... The fanfest Facebook group, some 75 people today. Uh, I nice. sold about a dozen tickets. So the Penzer pal- will
0: be happy about that.
1: Oh yeah. Penzer, Penzer back from Vegas uh, as of yesterday and I still haven't talked to him. So very excited. Coming up this Saturday. So that would be today is November second, November the sixth in Lutz, Florida at the Marriott residence in Suncoast Parkway, North Point Village. Something like that, but you can find it. It's very easy to find it. We are headlined by the Rock and Roll Express with a two-hour catered dinner and Q and A session, moderated by our own very own Booker. Uh, so we're very you, you. Go so ahead and ask me about I, the book. Uh, we should ask you about that. We will also have Jerry Jarrett doing the Cup of Coffee, which is a. 60-minute Q&A, which takes place first thing 11 a.m. in the morning. And then an after-party headlined by Len Denton, the grappler, also the dirty white boy, doing his one-man show. Others in attendance will be Bugsy McGraw, Barry Horowitz, Jerry Briscoe, the Cuban assassin, the saint. Top Gun coming in all the way from Portland. Very excited. Tickets are still available. You can go to eventbrite.com. Just type in CWF Legends Fan Fest, or you can find us on Facebook underneath the CWF
0: Legends Fan
1: Fest 7
0: Facebook group. And I will mention at the time of this recording that I have been contacted by Scott Teal, the publisher of my two books, who has told me the books are on the way. They're on the way to be here, so I'm not going to guarantee, but there is a Strong possibility that I will have books available to be purchased, number one. Number two, to be signed. Number three, to be not only signed, but personalized, Barry. Because I'm a giver. I'm a giver. You're a giver. What does that make both of us? We're givers. That's what we are. So, on behalf of our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman. And my co-host, Barry Rose, I will tell you that I am the booker, Jeff Baudrin, and Breaking K-Fabe with Baudrin and Barry is a production, ha-ha, Lou, I forgot last week, not this week, of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take it home, Lou.